welcome to Healing and Horsemanship, a podcast exploring the many healing paths we walk with horses. I'm your host, Shannon Ray Riley of Wild Willing Therapeutics and Training. This show is supported by The Herd. The Herd offers monthly bonuses for members, including access to a growing content library on all things health, wellness, and horses. For more on membership, visit wildwilling.com slash podcast. Thank you for joining me on this wild ride. And now, on to the show. Welcome back to episode number five of Healing and Horsemanship. Thank you for joining me. And today, as you will see, this episode is extra long. In this episode, I'm sharing an interview with Katherine Hofstetter of Open Heart Horsemanship. This episode really speaks for itself, so I'm going to keep this to a minimum. I just want to give you a little bit of background about Catherine before we dive into the interview so you know what kind of horsemanship she does. So she is an equine trauma specialist, holistic horsemanship facilitator, certified Usui and equine Reiki practitioner and master teacher, an equine herbalist, and a para-equestrian who is dedicated to using her voice to raise awareness about invisible disabilities in the equine industry. Her methodology is rooted in equine psychology and biomechanics. Some of the programs she runs through Open Heart Horsemanship, which you should absolutely check out, are called Equine Trauma Recovery, Soulmate Synergy, Equitation, Equine Emotional Empowerment and Rider Anxiety Resolution, Youth Horsemanship, and my favorite, the Mustang Mystery School. In this interview, we talk about invisible disabilities and the role they played in leveling up Catherine's horsemanship and opening her eyes to the equine experience. Validating and allowing trauma in horses in order for them to unwind and how their healing can promote our own self-healing self-accountability, and how horses aren't simply, quote, cosmic therapists we've been blessed with, but highly emotional intelligent beings that reflect our nature, thoughts, feelings, and more. Ethics of our scope of practice as horsemanship facilitators, who acknowledge the healing capabilities of horse-human interactions, the importance of saying, I don't know, and show me, as horse trainers and practitioners, embracing holistic horsemanship over natural horsemanship and the difference between the two, the need to do shadow work and sit with the heavy emotions in our interactions rather than forcing play, fun, and a no-bad-days mindset, addressing the elephants in the horse industry and how being the person to point out the elephants in the room means becoming comfortable and okay with having people not like what you have to say. So now... Thank you for joining me again, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm so happy to be talking to you here because I'm honestly just full of questions for you. <laughs> I feel like we could talk for a couple hours, but I really just want to like see 
where you want to go with it. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm I'm so excited to hear that. It's you know I've I've had to step away and like take a little sort of pause for a while because I went through some surgeries that had some pretty major recovery periods, and um, so that whole process has been something that you know I had to kind of step away from the career that I've spent um, you know over 14 years building, almost 15 years building, um, and to sort of have to suddenly completely put that down and step away from it has been really intense. And so to have you reach out and ask to do this was like, okay, so, you know, it's sort of, I was having a wonderful conversation with someone the other day where we were talking about that, you know, the definitions of success, right. And that when we talk about like building a career that part of that doesn't necessarily mean like that it's so successful that no matter what you can always pay all your bills and do all the things and be completely like financially free from something, but that it might be that you can step away from your career for an entire year um, or more and still have people be interested in what you're doing, you know, and things like that. So that was something that was really amazing to get to connect with you um, because of. Wow. Yeah, you you were on my radar on Instagram and then you posted something about Mustangs and I was like, I need to talk to you <laughs> ASAP, clearly. Well, I'm so glad you did because I'm so passionate about Mustangs and I've, you know, spent so much time working with them in various different capacities and now, you know, the program that I um was working on that you responded to the post about um, was a class that I teach for children. I actually teach remotely for a homeschool. And so I teach a horsemanship and an equine anatomy class for them. And so one of um, the lessons I was doing was about the Mustang issue in this country and um, getting to teach children about that. So um, that's been a cool thing to kind of get to do. Um, that no matter what else is going on in my life, I can always you know sit in front of the computer and teach kids about horses in that way. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's huge. And you, so you run a lot of really great programs through Open Heart Horsemanship, but you also run a youth horsemanship program. And can you tell us a little more about that? Is that something that you just love working with kids? Yeah, you know, it really surprised me because I was somebody who, you know, my journey with working with kids was really, really different. You know, and I started teaching when I was a kid, I started teaching professionally um, for adults when I was 12. Um, And so, I never really wanted to work with kids because for the longest time I was one and I didn't really want to teach peers. And I, um, the nature of the work that I do um, outside of the youth horsemanship program tends to be really intense around um, the ways that our daily lives affect our horsemanship. And usually, you know, the ways that somebody's personal life was kind of leading into their horsemanship and maybe, you know, causing some problems or causing some discomfort um, and disconnects in the relationship And that's not as much of a concept when it comes to working with children. That's just not really the avenue because they haven't really lived enough life. Um, And the ones that have, you know, that's just not how they process um, trauma at that age in that kind of container. And so I always sort of went, well, that's not my work. And, you know, I don't run like a writing school or a lesson program, like the traditional kind of um, thing that we think about when we think of horse trainers and writing lessons and all of that. Um, It's much more about sort of, using horses as a vehicle to teach empathy and um, discernment and problem solving and critical thinking, but empathy is the biggest one. Um, And so I do things like somatic body practices to work with children when they're fearful about horses. You know, some of my favorite things to do are work with children who really, really love horses, but are terrified of them. Um, And that's something that I see a lot. And so I do a lot of bilateral stimulation techniques and things like that, that I teach them in the moment 
with horses, but very strongly with the influence of this is something you can do if you're sitting in circle time at class and feeling overwhelmed, or if you're having a difficult conversation with somebody and you don't know what to do, or if you're in any situation where you're struggling and we talk about things like what does it mean to be overstimulated and how can we empathize with the horse when they're feeling overstimulated and then use that to check in with ourselves and see where we're at. So it's really, you know, a vehicle to teach these kinds of concepts and then the sort of bring your elbows in, put your heels down, you know, look forward part is sort of auxiliary to all of that. Um, and like my uh, other programs that I have for adults, I have some students who don't want to ride the horse. They don't want to get on them. They don't want to do that. They may not even want to really touch the horse. They might just want to sit in the stall with the horse and talk about the horse. And that's awesome. And then I have some that, you know, can do things with my horses that, you know, some of the adults that I've worked with who, you know, have been riding for years still haven't achieved technically. And so there's a really broad spectrum um, of who I'm working with in terms of like who they are as a soul and what they want with horses and why they're there. Um, and so it's really sort of just the child's version of what I do with adults. And I really fell in love with working with these kids. And there's something that is so unique to, you know, it is, it is incredible to hold space for an adult coming to a profound realization about something going on in their life. But to have a child suddenly tap into something like, you know, concepts about empathy or, um, you know, treating others the way that we want to be treated or all of those different things. Um, and watching the little sort of wheels in their head turn as they work with horses and then seeing them light up with these bits of information that I would have never consciously thought that a child was really capable of understanding. And just to see them express these deep, you know, truths about how we connect with each other, whether it's a horse and a person or two people or whatever it is, you know, what it means to be in connection with another person and what it means to be on your own too. And so getting to facilitate that for children has completely changed everything about my program. It's changed how I work with adults. Um, wow. So I've been really, really fortunate to get to work with some incredible children and um, some of them even, you know, that I haven't worked with for years because they've moved away that I still get regular emails from and who will, you know, send Christmas cards and send pictures of the horses they're riding where they live now and go, this one looks like your horse or this one doesn't look like your horse, but look at it, you know, and all kinds of cool things like that. So it's been really wonderful um, to get to kind of step into that mentorship role, um, particularly given the relationship that I had with my mentor growing up and some of my incredible teachers who, you know, really gave me the foundations that I have today, you know, to get to be that for somebody else um, is is just incredible. So I'm really, really honored that, you know, people um, want to bring their children to me and let me be a part of their lives in that way. So... Well, I feel like you're someone that they can relate to maybe a little bit easier. And like you said about not, it's not the heels down, elbows in, and it's not something that they need to necessarily use their full brain capacity. It's Mm -hmm. like a felt sense. And so that's them playing. But also, can we take a step back? Because I'm so interested (laughs) how it was for you. So you started at such a young age, but what was it like? were you immediately accepted or did you encounter obstacles being so young and like still do. Oh, I mean, it's, it's something that, um, gosh, you know, I joke now that, um, when I roll up on the ranch and step out of a car to work with somebody now, it's no longer the first question that people ask. So how old are you? It's maybe the fifth or sixth question that they ask. Um, and it's just now, even in the last, like, I don't know, maybe year or so starting to not be, 
such a predominant part of the conversation. And I've, I've really only noticed in the last maybe six months to a year working with clients who just don't ever ask my age. Um, and that's been something that's really interesting to see the shift around that. But I mean, I started when I was 12 and I sort of both did and didn't intend to be in a teaching role. Um, my mentor did very similar work to what I do in terms of the horse training aspect of it. She worked with severely abused horses and retrained them. Um, and that's something that when I approached her um, and asked if she would teach me, she said, I will teach you, but I'm not just going to give you lessons on the horses I'm training. I'm going to make you learn how to help me teach them. Um, and so she just immediately brought me in, in a sense of, you're going to learn how to do this in the space of being a teacher for horses. And then once I got really confident with that, around the time I was maybe 10 or so, she partnered me up in a program she had where she would take the more advanced students and have them teach and mentor the younger, newer students. And so she had me work with a young girl who was terrified of horses, just the sweetest girl. She's completely in love with my horse. Um, and, you know, to put a pin in that real quick, my mentor also, when I bought my first horse, who I still have today, um, she said, I will only sign off on you buying this horse if you let me teach you how to retrain him. I'm not going to do it for you. I will be there for you. I will help you along the way. I'm not going to give you lessons on your horse that I'm training for you. You're going to figure out how to do this on your own. So I had a really close partnership with this horse already. And then came in and had this young girl completely fall in love with him. And she was just terrified. Like she could barely even look at him without bursting into tears, but she wanted nothing more than to ride this horse and be around him. And so very, very slowly over the course of about two years, we got to the point where by the time I stopped working with her, she was show jumping um, and wow. was like, I want to go ride in the Olympics. I want to go do all these things. And, you know, had these huge big dreams. Um, and unfortunately I wasn't able to keep in touch with her. So I don't know if she pursued them or not. Um, but she, she was incredible and she was sort of my first trial student. And then about two years later, when I was 12, I was at a boarding barn and had another boarder approach me who'd been having some problems with her horse. Um, and she approached me and said, Hey, I've, I've been watching you and your horse and I really love what you're doing. Will you please teach me to have that with my horse? And at the time I wasn't even thinking like in a professional training sense, it was more just like, I'm, I'm going to help you and that's going to be fine. And I just didn't really give it any other thought besides this person is struggling and I can help them and they've asked for my help. So I'm going to do that and tell them what I know um, and show them what I know. And at the end of the first session, she put a check in my hand and then it kind of went like that every week for years and years after. And, you know, right even after that first lesson, I had other boarders who were watching the two of us come up to me and say, Hey, will you come work with my horse? And all of a sudden, I was working with almost every person at that barn and then several other barns in the little town that I lived in in Santa Cruz. And um, so it just sort of took off running from there, so to speak. Um, and, you know, it was really difficult in a lot of ways working with students who were, you know, in their 50s and 60s when I was 12. And fortunately, I managed to attract some people who were really wonderful about it and who you know, everyone sort of when I was that age had their initial moment of this is kind of unusual. Um, and then for the most part, once the work started and everything started to be really synergistic, it started to kind of come together and people stopped really questioning the age thing. It was usually only within the first one or two sessions. Um, and it would come up particularly when I suggested things that sort of gently pressed on their boundaries. Um, 
around what was happening in the space. And that's where they would go, you know, okay, well, I'm older than you or, you know, some, some version. I don't even fully recall the kinds of pushback exactly I would get verbatim, but it would be things of, you know, trying to kind of assert an age related dominance. And I would always sort of step back and say, Hey, this is non-traditional. If you're not comfortable with this, that's totally fine. But if that's the case, I'm going to need you to dismount and we're going to have to end the session because I can't keep anyone safe if you don't trust me. And that I never had a moment where somebody went, yep, you're right, and stepped off their horse and was done. I always had people go, oh my goodness, you're right. I'm so sorry. Can we talk about what's coming up for me right now? And then we would talk about it and we would address what was feeling uncomfortable for them or what was feeling vulnerable about having someone younger notice these things for them. Um, so it was really incredible too, because I got to have these really candid conversations with people that I think played a much bigger role in the way that I did work later in my career around what in the moment about the way that we were interacting was bringing stuff up for them or who was I representing to them or, you know, all of those different things. Um, and so that was a really big part of it. And then, you know, kind of throughout the course of my career, I've had different ups and downs, you know, related to my age. Um, but thankfully, it's been something that all the people that have been really meant for me, um, it tends to not be an issue for longer than maybe the first five minutes of a conversation or the first one or two lessons. Um, and then it kind of dissolves naturally. So I've been really fortunate in that way. I think just listening to you, I would never guess, or if I hadn't been able to like see you on video, I would never guess your age. <laughs> you come across as such an old soul. So there's definitely a very unique thing about you with that, that not every 12 year old could handle themselves like that. Right. Yeah. But that was definitely a big part of it. How do you think, let's also even go further back because you mentioned at the beginning about what you'd gone through growing up with your health and invisible disabilities and how that's informed your work. So how do you think that also got you to the point where you are with your horsemanship? Yeah. I mean, gosh, that's an incredible question. And it's one that, you know, has so many different sort of facets as my relationship to my health um, and the challenges that I've faced have sort of grown and changed over time. Um, And, you know, the business is named open heart horsemanship because, you know, I'm a cardiac patient and I had um, an open heart surgery at infancy. And that was a really big part of my journey, but I always had these sort of other things that it took, it took years and years to get a real diagnosis, but I was, you know, living with some pretty debilitating um, struggles that I faced on a regular basis. And where that really, I think played the biggest role for the longest period of time was that I was so sort of hell bent on making sure that no one knew that I was struggling because my age was already a big enough hurdle that I didn't want anybody to know that anything else was going on. I didn't want anyone to have to make any more exceptions for me than they already were. Um, And I didn't want people to make judgments about me or what I was capable of or um, anything like that prior to working with me. Um, and so then I would kind of get to the next facet of what would happen. So I would, I would keep things really repressed and I got really, really good as I think many people, um, if not most people with invisible disabilities are, um, I got really good at masking it and really good at hiding it. And I could be in just horrific pain, um, and not really able to function and still kind of get out to the horses and get it done. And one of the magical things about horses is, you know, the moment I got on their back, it all disappeared and I felt pain-free and fine. And then the moment I got down off the horse, that was all coming back again. Um, So that played a really big role, but 
the sort of next piece that I experienced after the masking of it and the trying to hide it um, was getting treated really differently and and having the the interplay between the age and the health challenges was really unique in that. Um, and I've only really spoken about this a couple of times because it was something that um, I had to kind of sit with my experience for a long time and gain perspective to really see how I felt about it. Um, but I would go through this process where I would meet either other trainers or clients or other boarders, people in the community. Almost exclusively, this would happen with people who were much older than me, where they would ask me about my training. They'd ask me about my background, my experience, all those different things. And I would tell them um, and I would start to notice some what I perceived to be insecurity on their end sort of bubbling up where they might have been really excited about me and really sort of vivacious and um, extroverted in the way that they connected with me. And that as soon as I told them about my experience and how long I'd been working or the kinds of work I had done, they would start to kind of close themselves off. And I noticed this particularly with people who either were in very specific strict disciplines where they were, you know, either I'm a Western pleasure trainer or I am a jumping trainer or I'm a dressage trainer and this is the thing that I do. Um, or with people who were maybe not as experienced in the industry. And so I'd start to notice this pushback where suddenly people would get kind of bristly with me after they'd asked me about my experience and I told them. Um, and that's often too when the, and you're how old conversation would come in. They would ask me about my experience. I would tell them and then they would say, and you're how old. Um, and then sort of either within that same conversation or weeks to months later, Somehow there would be a moment where um, either because I wasn't well that day or whatever it was, I would have to disclose some element of my health challenges. And often I would disclose like the least amount possible just because um, I so was still really attached to hiding it and to making sure that nobody made any kind of snap decisions about me, particularly with people who had already kind of bristled a little bit um, when they learned my experience. And, you know, if someone was already a little bit on the fence or uncertain about how they felt in an interaction with me for whatever reason, um, and I was always pretty conscious of the fact that it wasn't, wasn't necessarily a reflection of me and sort of the next piece that would happen really bolstered that um, belief for me. And that was where I would disclose one little bit about something that was happening. And they would say, Oh, well, you look perfectly healthy, or you're young and healthy, it's not a problem. And the statement of, well, you're young and healthy, always really bothered me or someone would say, you know, Oh, gosh, my knees really bothering me today. And I would say, Oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. Is there any way I can support you? I totally know what that's like, my knees bother me too. And they go, yo, your knees don't bother you. You're, you're young and healthy, you'll see when you're older. And I would say, well, you know, I, I definitely deal with a couple things, so I, I can relate. And I would be sort of vague like that. Um, but I always really struggled with the, you look fine, therefore you must be fine kind of statement that would happen directly in relationship to my age in such a way that then, you know, I would try to very gently sort of stand up for myself just in saying like, well, you know, people aren't always how they look on the outside or, you know, some kind of gentle thing that was sort of still diplomatic, but didn't just let someone make an assumption about me. Um, and then that's the point at which they'd go, well, what do you mean? And I would disclose a little bit more or over time, there'd be more and more. And eventually at the point where they sort of figured out 
whatever version of whatever extent to which I wanted to disclose what was going on. You know, I very rarely would list out all of the surgeries I've had and all the diagnoses and all the different things, but I would share something like, you know, well, I have fibromyalgia. And so there are, you know, some days where I can't get out of bed or I've got, you know, a gastrointestinal issue and I, you know, haven't actually been able to eat very regularly. So I'm, I'm so sorry. I can't go out to dinner with you and your husband. I'm not able to eat right now. You know, those kinds of things. And suddenly their whole energy would change. And instead of being sort of bristled and prickly because they weren't quite sure what to do with me, they would turn around and have this sort of really complex, I think ultimately shame response um, where I would watch them sort of start to get a little embarrassed when I was talking. And then suddenly they would kind of go way the other way and go, you're an inspiration and you're, you know, you're all these things. And they would sort of almost in a way it felt sort of dehumanizing because they'd suddenly put me on this pedestal of like, I went from the amount of experience you have for your age makes me uncomfortable to now I'm, embarrassed and insecure that I made a judgment about you. And so now I'm going to elevate you really high on the other side. And that sort of felt like a veiled sort of pity response um, of like, oh, I, I was intimidated by a disabled person. Oh my God. Um, And I've dealt with that a lot. Um, And that's something that regardless of age, even still, that's because despite the fact that I'm now an adult, I'm still very young to be dealing with the kinds of health health issues that I face. And so, you know, I still kind of get that, that response of putting me up on this pedestal of, if you can do all of these things, then certainly I can, you know, there's this, well, if you can do it, then I can definitely do it. And if you can do this, then I can do anything Um, that doesn't actually feel good to receive. And the sentiment is really well-meaning, but to receive that, doesn't feel good because it's sort of the concept of, well, if you can do this, then I can do anything inherently puts the subject of that sentiment that you in question on kind of a lower playing field than the person thinking that. Um, And so that's been something that has been really difficult for me to sit with over the years and um, was a really big part of where my struggle about how transparent to be um, about the issues that I face and all of that, um, you know, and especially as it comes to my professional platform and, you know, I've spent several years sort of building a platform and I always was sort of taught, you know, your health issues are private. That's not professional to share those things. It's unprofessional. Um, and then someone said to me something that just completely in an instant shift my shifted my perspective. And that was, how do you think it would have changed your experience as a little girl in this industry if someone like you now had been transparent about the kinds of things that you're going through and created a seat at the table for her? And that for me was like, all right, well, <laughs> that's, you know, that's clearly part of my, my purpose um, is to, to create that space for people and to use, um, you know, my story and my experiences to show people and I think show the industry um, at large that, you know, the side of the horsemanship community that that struggles with these things, that struggles with disabilities is not always something you can see. Um, And, you know, it was very difficult for me not to compare for a long time and not to feel like, 
I didn't suffer enough for it to be justified for me to sort of claim one thing or another about my level of disability. Even for me, you know, my family kind of jokingly uses the term like the D word because I was really scared of that for a long time. For me, that meant that I couldn't do things. And the reality is it does mean that there are some things I can't do. It also means there are a lot of things I have to do differently, but I'm not somebody different than the person that I've always been. And that was the thing that really made it feel othering and scary. And so I've had to really learn to embrace that And part of that came from even about a year ago, I had a doctor sit me down and go, you have to realize that if you're going to pursue a career with horses, you are disabled and you need to understand that that's going to have an impact on your health, on the choices that you're going to make. And if you would like to have a career in this field, you can't live like that's not true because you will get hurt and you will no longer be able to do the work that you care so much about. And that was a real scruff shake for me that I think I really needed to stop sort of pretending for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. I think we all pretend to some extent. I don't know about you, but so many of the horse people I come across in all corners, whether it's natural horsemanship or very traditional or like, you know, specific dressage or Western, I think there's this aspect of if you can't toughen up and get on the horse, then you have to pay someone else to do it. And sort of the more rough and tumble, it's like you sometimes have to just get the bucks out and whether that's physically getting it out or like riding out a storm. But if your body can't put up with that, then you need someone else that can get in there and do the job. But honestly, the reality is it's not true. I mean, I think that's the hard part is that, it's you know, this industry is so conditioned to believe that. And one of the things that has led me to the work that I do and led me to being able to work with horses that are, have been labeled untouchable, have been given labels like, you know, man killer and things like that, where it's like, oh, don't touch that horse. It's a Bengal tiger and, you know, no one can go near it. And the reality is having to find ways to work with animals where normally people would just get on and get the bucks out in a way that's not doing that creates a whole different way of connecting with them that works for the horses that just getting on and rough and tumbling your way through, it doesn't work for. And so that's led me to the majority of my client base is having to find these alternative ways and having to figure out, you know, how incredible the benefits of doing things slowly and doing things in a different way and like listening to really what does the horse need, not just what is it that I've learned is effective because those two things are different. Um, you know, and, and I think a big piece of that too, is the whole concept of like, if you fall off, get back on, um, you know, and that's something that I've really sort of railed against in the more recent years of my career, particularly when it comes to teaching children. That's where, um, Mm -hmm. I think I'm one of my greatest passions with teaching children is, um, dismantling the concept of if you fall off, just get back on. Um, because honestly, I have so seldom seen that work in a way that creates an empowered, self-sufficient, confident rider um, and a confident, empowered, self-sufficient relationship between the horse and the rider. Usually what I have found is really needed is to sit and like take stock of like, how am I feeling in this moment? How is the horse feeling? Why did this happen? What led to that? Let's unpack how this all happened without trying to get right back into it again. Because, you know, I think, gosh, I grew up with so many trainers who I would come off a horse and they'd throw me back on. And then as I was on the horse doing the get back on part of it, they'd want to talk through what had just happened. And the reality is 
we can't get perspective about what just happened if we're just forced right back into it. And so to check in with our bodies, to check in with the horse, see what feels good. And the reality is sometimes they do get back on half an hour later after we've had a chance to like go through, how do we, how do we use this opportunity to regulate our nervous system? How do we co-regulate with the horse right now? What is, what do those words mean? Let's use this as an opportunity to talk about that. Gosh, what are other areas we can do that in our life? You're so right. Hey, now that we're thinking about it and we're feeling a little bit more calm, would, would you like to brush the horse and just connect? Or would you like to get back on? And then they can make a decision from a place of deactivation where they're no longer in their own personal fight or flight response of having just come off a horse. Um, and you know, that's something that is really incredible and has created, um, a whole different sort of perspective that I see, um, with my, with my students compared to a lot of the kids that I've worked with in sort of other lesson programs. Cause I've come in and out of other people's lesson programs as sort of a, an on-staff trainer and had to kind of adhere to different methods at various points and, um, you know, to see the difference when I have the opportunity to work in that way with children um, is just incredible. And it's something that I have to remind myself too when I'm in situations where, and, you know, thankfully now kind of moving forward where I've been in my career for a while now, I haven't had the issue of, you know, coming off and getting back on literally, but having the moment of when things get derailed and don't go as planned, how do I handle that? How do I react? Do I bulldoze my way through it and try to just force a situation to work? Or do I stop and figure out why did it not work in the first place? Mm-hmm. And whose mm-hmm. responsibilities in that situation fall where? You know, where is the communication breakdown? Where where are trauma responses getting triggered? You know, what actually happened rather than just focusing on what I wanted didn't happen. Because that doesn't get you any closer to a positive outcome. That just creates tension and aggression. Um, and distrust with the horse. So yeah, it's been a big piece of it for me, for sure. Oh, I love that. And yeah, that is so completely true. It's never been something that worked, but it's something that's our cultural norm. And that we sort of, like you said, we put on a pedestal, the people that can like, get the bucks out, fall off, and then get right back on as though they can just be punched and like beat senselessly, but they're not feeling it somehow. Like, I'm sorry, but that's just abuse. It's either like self-destructive or we're expecting someone else to take the abuse or the horse ultimately to take it, right? And, you know, what other situation, if we look at like human relationships, you know, when we look at relationships, if you mirrored an interaction of somebody, for example, doing the traditional like breaking method, um, whereas I personally use language like starting, um, if you look at the traditional breaking method of just getting on and just letting them buck like crazy until eventually they're over it and doing things that rough and fast kind of way, first of all, it's coercive. There's no consent involved. Clearly, there's not consent involved. Otherwise, the horse wouldn't react like that. But then tabling that whole piece if we mirrored that kind of energetic interaction with like a human conversation where one person is expressing deep, deep discomfort to the point of having an explosive, um, you know, upset reaction, dysregulated in whatever way, whether they're sad, whether they're, you know, heartbroken, whether they're angry, whatever it is, and the other person trying to shut them down for it and condemning them and criticizing them for having that reaction, we would call that an abusive relationship. We wouldn't call that a teaching moment. That's not how humans teach each other. And so 
the mm-hmm. fact that that's still so okay in the horse world just is mind boggling to me because when we look at how we'd want to be treated by other people, how we would like to treat other people, that's not what it looks like. We we build trust over time. And if somebody has a strong reaction to a way that we behave, that's them showing us where their boundaries are. And we naturally are inclined to back off and go, oh, okay, I misread that. I was moving too quickly. No worries. Like, I'll let you take it from here to show me what you're comfortable with. That's the normal social way that people interact with one another. But with horses, we meet a boundary and we punish them for showing us where the boundary is. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's just, you know, I think really frustrating. in a lot of ways. And it ultimately is part of what leads me to a lot of my clients who have been sort of informed that they should try that way over and over and over. And when it either doesn't work because it's just not functional for them and their horse and, you know, causing problems in the relationship or because they in their heart mm-hmm. just can't bring themselves to treat their horse that way. Ultimately, that's kind of where I tend to come in. Um And, you know, I think that particularly with some of the experiences I've had um, earlier on in my training, you know, when I was in school in Montana, I saw a lot of the sort of rough and tough cowboy way. um, And a lot of the reasons that that didn't work. And, you know, a lot of the sort of trainers out there, you know, coming in every couple weeks with another broken bone, um, you know, in a horse that wasn't really that much further down the line, or it was until one day it snapped um, at something really small because the horse just didn't trust the person, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think was something that showed me a lot. And I think I've learned a lot about why I do what I do from watching people do things and going, Ooh, I think that doesn't work or, Oh, that's not how I want my horse to feel about me. Um, and I love the expression. I've, I've seen it floating around quite a bit. Um, that true horsemanship's not about what we can make our horses do. It's about how we make our horses feel or how our horses mm-hmm. feel about us. And I don't remember who exactly said it, um, but that's one of those things that, you know, I think about it all the time because there was a time in my life where technical achievement was achievement was a lot more important to me. Um, and now, you know, if my horses feel good about me and they trust me, and if moreover in an emergency, I get activated and I can look to them to be the leader. If I can look at my horse and go, I'm terrified, please make the decisions. And they'll do that. That to me is like the pinnacle of success. Um, There's really nothing more I can ask for than um, trusting my horse to be the leader when I'm feeling insecure. That's beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) That is completely how I would love to see that become the norm in the horse world. And I, I'm at a loss for words, honestly, when (laughs) I feel like the cash crop now with social media is like, put what you do into a video. And Mm -hmm. how does that come across? You know, you're basically, my feed is me either putting my hands on my horses or just standing there with them. And not that that's all we do, but you can't capture the feelings and the depth of trust in a video. And just the fact that you're getting these people coming to you, I think, I think you have a very rare gift because of your invisible disability and all of the pain and suffering you've gone through. Because this is another question I had for you, but really to be able to empathize with a horse's trauma and feelings, or not even their trauma, but just their feelings, period. You know, you have been forced your body has made you be in that position and think outside the box with them if you were 
maybe able to like force your body to do certain things, maybe you wouldn't have had the opportunity. So it is suffering or pain can be such a powerful teacher in that way. And I just want to highlight that. But you also talk about um, one of your programs, you call it equine emotional empowerment and writer anxiety resolution, which sounds just so (laughs) incredible. So how does that look? And then how do you validate a horse's trauma when it might be invisible to everyone else around you? Right. Well, I love that question. And, you know, before I dive into the sort of machinations of that program, I'll start with that question. Cause I think that that's, you know, absolutely at the backbone of all of the different programs that I, that I work. And, um, you know, I think that when we talked about the concept of like, you can't force your body to do something. Um, I spent so long trying and, um, you know, I, gosh, even, even just yesterday overdid it, moving my horses to a new property and the whole time kind of gritting my back teeth and, you know, lifting big, heavy things that I, you know, have no business lifting right now. And, you know, things like that, that I just will revert into the trauma response of grin and bear it, you know, grit your back teeth, just go do it. You know, that was something that, um, you know, my family kind of has a shorthand where, where we'll say, don't just go do it. Cause I had a, a professor in Montana, um, a horsemanship professor who was all about like, stop standing there thinking with your horse, just go do it. Um, and that would cause a lot of unsafety. And so just go do it has become kind of like, you know, the expression for like, you're pushing yourself, check in with your body, slow down and stop. Mm-hmm. And I think because I have such a profound body awareness for what it feels like and emotional awareness for the internal resentment, the resentment of self that happens when you push yourself further than your body is telling you it can go. Um, And I think that, you know, I see so much of the ways that when horses are pushed into situations that either physically, emotionally, or both are uncomfortable for them, um, where pain is not visible, I can see in them that same kind of resentment at the situation at why their body's hurting right horses don't know why their body hurts they don't know that their back hurts because the saddle doesn't fit they don't know that their feet hurt because of a trim job that didn't go right they don't consciously understand those things they just know it hurts and i'm stuck here and i think particularly living a life of dealing with these invisible disabilities and not being able to get a diagnosis for so long was like it hurts. And I don't know why it's just, I'm just stuck with the body that I've got. Um, and I see that particularly, and I'm really passionate about that as it relates to traditional lesson program horses, where we think of like the sort of old beat down lesson horse that's, you know, and all the, the jokes that are out there about the different vices that lesson horses have. Well, they have those vices because they've tried for so long to express that they're uncomfortable and haven't been listened to that they just give up. And so they need something, you know, if it's the same reason that people pick up smoking cigarettes, like you just got to do something when, when you can't handle the stress anymore. Um, and when you're in that situation of being sort of compulsively not listened to, eventually you get to a point where you snap. And sometimes if that happens five days a week for several hours a day with different kids every single time, your Mm -hmm. patience gets shorter and shorter and shorter. And so I can see that happen with horses. Um, and I particularly see a unique version of that within the rider anxiety resolution program that I have. And that's where I really for the most part, that program tends to apply to people who already have their own horse and have been through something 
that has created significant fear. Usually, I'd say maybe six out of 10 times, it's that that horse and rider were in some kind of riding accident. Mm -hmm. Um, Often the horse has a residual injury as well. Um, sometimes they don't, sometimes it's just the horse had a big reaction that I've never seen a horse have before. And sometimes it's people who they've been riding their whole life, but they've never ridden a horse that maybe was not a fully trained lesson horse. Maybe they adopted a BLM Mustang that was trained by someone they don't know. And they don't know where the horse's buttons are and triggers are. And, you know, the horse has a big reaction that they've never seen a horse have before, even though they've been around horses their whole life. And it's because they've been around these horses that are so sort of deadened to stimulus that they don't know that a horse can necessarily react that way in real time over something that they perceive to be smaller and significant that the horse thinks is a really big deal. And what I think is so challenging is seeing when the horse, you know, so deeply loves and is connected to their rider who is so deeply fearful. And it creates this feed, feedback loop of fear and distrust in spite of very deep love that causes pain for both parties. Um, and bridging the gap there is something that I'm so pas- passionate about. And usually the answer is slowing down. Um, almost always the answer is slowing down and teaching the person in question some tools for body awareness, because often there's a kind of combination of things happening in the case of really fearful riders or anxious riders. Um, And that is that they're either not attuned enough to the signals that their body is sending them when they're starting to get activated, or they're hyper attuned to those signals, but they don't have any tools really to deal with when that happens, or they don't know what to do when that happens. And so either they start to get in this feedback loop of being sort of afraid of their own fear response, where they start to realize this situation's making me anxious, and then they spiral out. Um, and they're not able to really see what about the situation is making them anxious to figure out how they can address it. And one of the things that I come back to a lot when working with fear as it relates to horses is that almost all of it is rooted in something happening that we don't know why it's happening or what to do about it. And almost Mm -hmm. all fear gets completely eradicated if you know why something's happening and what to do about it. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it comes back to that a lot, but we can't just start there, right? I can't just say your horse is, you know, getting really high in his headset and getting really activated because he's excited, not because he's fearful or whatever, whatever the example is. I can't just tell them that that doesn't work. I have to first help them figure out how to re-regulate and sort of rewire their nervous system as it relates to their horse so that they're able to see clearly what's going on with the horse in the moment. Because just because I can see it and I can tell them that, that does nothing. And frankly, if I were to do that, it would bring up a fear and shame response as it relates to the relationship I have with them. And I would be one more trainer that didn't work for them. Um you know, there are so many professionals out there that are exquisite at being able to identify what the problem is. I think the disconnect and where so many horse owners struggle with trainers and a lot of the horse owners that I've worked with, I say the greater majority of my clients, the feedback that I have is I've always been scared of trainers because I've only had really negative experiences where I've been yelled at, shamed, judged, criticized, whatever. Um, And I'm really afraid to work with a trainer again. And frankly, I didn't use the word trainer up until maybe three years ago. Um, I would use facilitator, mentor, 
teacher, coach, anything but trainer. Um, and that was part of the reason why. And, you know, I think that helping people to sort of meet that part of themselves that is fearful, that is anxious, that is uncertain, that doesn't know what to do with empathy is huge because I think that so much of where the struggles are in this industry, where it comes to professionals working with horse owners specifically is a sort of either overt or um, subliminal message of you should know this already Mm -hmm. a message of why don't you know this? Or, well, if you just knew this, that wouldn't happen. And so it creates you know, a real anxiety for people around being unfamiliar with something around not knowing the answer. And I think that's where so much of the ego in this industry is really deeply rooted. Um, is there's so much criticism around, you know, the words I don't know. Um, and gosh, if it isn't just an empowering thing to sit face to face with a horse and look at that horse and go, I don't know. I don't know. I'm present with you and I'm just going to receive it. And that's so much of what I do in the the technical piece of getting into that part of the question around what does that program look like? You know, usually I'm brought in by someone who's having a specific issue or they're just having a systemic, it's either the horse bucks, the horse takes off with me, everything's fine until we get up to a canter, sort of various different situations that I see playing out over and over. Um, or it, will be everything was fine until we got in a wreck six months ago and the horse had this injury and they've never been the same since. And I'm you know really afraid to get on them now. Um, or it'll just be a lot of times it's, I've never had my own horse and I adopted this horse for the first time. And I think I might be a little bit overmatched and I don't have the tools to deal with this horse. I don't know what to do for him. Um, you know, or I don't have the background to support this horse in the way that it needs. And so things get unsafe really quickly. And that's scary for me. So it's any one of those or several other different kinds of, for instances, that will happen. And the first thing that I always do is the same thing that I do with horses if I'm just training the horse one-on-one. And I've gotten the question a lot about like, well, what's your method? What do you do? And I've always said, I don't have a method. It's different for everyone. This is the one thing that I always do no matter what. And it is that I approach either the pair of horse and rider or the horse on their own, whatever it is, with show me. And I have them as much as they can. Show me what they normally do. Show me the horse in their natural setting. Show me the horse in the setting that you're asking them to be in. Show me what it looks like when you experience this issue that you're facing or however close we can get to it safely. Um, Show me what I'm working with here before I come in and go, okay, well, I'm going to put you through the ringer of these different exercises and that's going to show me this or that. I want to see what it looks like if I'm a fly on the wall. Um, And that experience of just show me what's happening before I try to do anything about it, I have found also builds a really critically important part of the trust with the horse that I have to have regardless of whether or not I'm working with a horse and an owner or a horse one-on-one where if I come in and immediately take action and start trying to do things, that instantly creates just a canyon of distrust between me and the horse, where I have to overcome whatever the horse is sort of in the moment um, sort of under fire responses are to the choices that I'm making, rather than just having them show me who they are. And then that in turn gives me a chance to show them who I am. Um, 
and we can come to it from a place of, I'm not trying to make you do something. I'm not going to come in and immediately be an authority figure. Um, it just, it doesn't work. And I think that's um, very similar to in, in the process of working with children. You know, I think immediately coming in and trying to be an authority um, just doesn't seem to be in alignment with horses or riders that have anxiety and deep fear. Um, and for horses that don't, who are comfortable and stoked and living their best life, it's unnecessary to come in and immediately be authoritarian. Um, so it's either detrimental or just, you know, sort of an extraneous behavior. (laughs) I completely agree with that. And on the subject of a trauma too, the horse is probably used to someone coming in and going, they're fine, they're fine, they're fine. Mm -hmm. Like, I can't see what's actually wrong, even if the horse might have like run into a fence post, you know, and had a really profound personality change after that. But people will go, they're fine. There's no swelling. There's no cut. So can you speak to how do you, how do you one assess a trauma in a horse and how do you help them unwind and validate? Yeah. So that process is always uniquely different on some level, depending on the horse. But the part that again is across the board is that that concept of show me is something that I come back to a lot that looks Mm -hmm different and the same in every situation. And that is, you know, first I want to be able to really see what's going on for everyone in, in their sort of natural habitat, so to speak, you know, when nothing's being asked of them, I want to see the different levels. One of the things in terms of assessing a horse's trauma specifically um, that I will do is I always ask people to tell me as much as they can about the horse's background, about their experience with the horse. And I've worked with some colleagues who are totally the opposite. They don't want to know anything because the idea is like this horse's life didn't start till I walked up to it. Um, that's not a belief that I necessarily am in alignment with at all. Um, I can see the logic. It's not something that's I've found to be effective necessarily. Um, but I think that when it comes to that assessment, Getting the background from the person doesn't actually really have a whole lot to do with how I view the horse. It has to do with how the person views their relationship with the horse and how the person sees the horse. The horse is the one telling me about them, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever it is that they show me is what I take as sort of gospel about who that horse is. That's not to say that I completely write off and don't take into account at all what the person tells me, I hold it in very high regard. But 10 different people can tell the same horse's story 10 different ways. And how they tell that story tells me a lot about how they process trauma, how they relate to their horse's trauma, how much they take it on as their own or not, what their healthy boundaries are, how codependent or not, how enmeshed or not they are in their horse's story. Um, It also tells me a lot about how they're going to receive feedback in the way that they need it what their learning style is, and how that relates to the way that they interact with their horse and what their horse's learning styles and reactions and behaviors look like moment to moment. Mm -hmm. Um, And it tells me so much of what I need to know about how I can be most effective, both for the horse and the rider, um, and the relationship that they share. And then from there, I will take that information and put it in a file cabinet and spend some time with the horse, and this is this is sort of critical to me, 
with the horse on their own, not necessarily without the owner there, but just without the owner asking the horse to do anything, just observing the horse, even if it means the horse is in a round pen. And I have sort of, if we wanted to get into the real nitty gritty ideas about like, well, the moment you take a horse out of wherever it is they live and do anything with them, you're doing something. But if it's a space where based on, you know, the boarding facility or whatever it is, observing them in a box stall is not going to give me as much information as seeing them, you know, in a round pen. Um, you know, and sometimes it does. So it really, that's another one of those things that varies depending on the specific situation. But then once I've had a chance to kind of hear the the human side, see the horse a little bit, see how they think about things, how they move through the world. Um, I, at that point will never approach the horse. I will maybe, if it's depending on the situation with the horse, if it's safe, if they're the kind of horse that would appreciate this, I will, um, enter into whatever the space is, but I won't ever go up to them. I will sit with them and they can come check me out. They can feel my energy. Um, they can share with me, but I don't ever go up to them at that point. I just watch and see what they do. And then at a given point, I will say, okay, show me what you do on a regular basis. If I wasn't here and you were just here to work with your horse, show me what you do. Um, And that's the point that I will observe the horse and rider interacting with one another. And I'm using the term rider, realizing plenty of my clients don't actually ride their horses, um, but the human in the situation. Um, And then usually right around that point is when whatever the challenges will start to bubble up. And that's where both the horse and the rider sort of independently of one another will sort of look at me and either overtly or um, just with a sort of look behind their eyes, go, see, this is what I'm talking about. Um, And then that's where I go, okay, how are we going to like slow this down, break it into a million little digestible micro pieces to figure out where we're going to start. And one of the philosophies that I really apply to this sort of approach is That if something is bringing up anxiety for the horse or the rider, you've already moved too fast, too quickly, too far. We can't start from whatever our own perception as professionals is of where ground zero is. We've got to figure out, you know, sometimes ground zero for my clients is standing outside their stall and looking at them and talking about them. And sometimes the moment that I say, all right, show me what you would do if you were going to you know, bring the horse out or how you're going to interact, whatever. Sometimes just walking into the space with the horse or the horse getting like physically close to them, if there's a lot of fear going on, already it's too much. Um, and so there are regulation you know, tools that we can build. There are all kinds of different um, sort of tools that I can help give somebody before we even get to the point of needing to be in physical contact with the horse. Um, In terms of validating the horse's trauma and their experience, one of the examples that I love to use um, and that I've seen over and over is, and this is a, a really common example within the framework of relationships between horse and rider where there's fear or anxiety, and that is that big expressions of energy and emotion feel unsafe, both for the horse and the rider at varying capacities. And what is so interesting about that is that I have found the the sort of antidote to that to be really counterintuitive. And that is that usually in that relationship, there is a driving goal of keeping the horses mellow, keeping them as calm, keeping everything really, really chill, really quiet, you know, non-reactive, Um, And I talk a lot about how the nature of sneaking with horses, um, 
very closely mimics like predators stalking their prey. And so when we go out of our way to like kind of walk on eggshells to keep them from being reactive, it actually just tells them that we're unsafe. Um, and it villainizes those big expressions. And so what starts to happen in that dynamic that I see a lot is horses start to learn that doing things like cantering, like bucking, like having any kind of big emotional expression is physically unsafe for them. And so then they, within that, develop an immediate fear response to being in that high energy state. And so that's where I see a lot of people whose horses will have the the experience of like, they're totally fine and safe at a walk and a trot. The moment I ask them to canter, they come completely unglued. And I don't know what's wrong because they're fine in a walk and trot. And then the moment we canter, they just lose their mind. And I found that usually the answer is that inherently that much energy in the horse's body feels unsafe to them. And it leads to them sort of dissociating. And one of the things that I have found has been a solution um, in, in my experience so far, almost every time. And granted, this is one of those, like, don't try this without the proper, you know, support. Don't just walk in with your horse that is, you know, if, if you're listening to this and you go, my horse is unsafe and I can or two, that sounds just like my situation. Don't walk in without support and go do this with your horse. This is one of those within a carefully cultivated and safe container that has had the framework built up to make this then be safe. That part aside, what I will usually do is encourage either the horse or the horse and rider to, and this is all on the ground, by the way, to start to move up through that energy level. And so if we're, say, in a round pen, um, and sometimes depending on the role that the that the person in question's energy kind of plays in that dynamic, I might do this one-on-one with the horse first, or I might do it um, with the person there. Often what I will do is I will have the person in the relationship look at the ground and count their breaths and practice breathing all the way up into the top of their head and down out their feet into the into the dirt. And I'll just have them practice doing that, not look at the horse. And I will have them just try to be as much in their own space and in their own body, focusing on their breath as I can. I don't even want them to look at the horse yet. And I will ask the horse to move up to a canter. And when the horse gets to that pace and starts to get really explosive, I will praise them and praise them and praise them and praise them and encourage them and invite them to go faster. And I will make it a celebration. And it is amazing how every single time I have done that, I have seen the wheels in the horse's brain turn and they look at me like, are you crazy? And then all of a sudden I watch like their whole self come back into their body and what starts as running afraid becomes this celebration and they're throwing their head and they're kicking their heels and their whole energy becomes happy and the energy in the round pen completely changes. And at that point, they'll, you know, they'll start snorting, they'll start releasing all of that stress and they'll start to kind of come to it from a different place. That's usually the point at which I will invite the person to look up and look at the horse and see how they're doing. And that's when I'll ask them to participate in praising them because that also helps to shift their perspective. If if they're looking at their horse, have this big energetic expression in a safe and healthy way that the horse is playful, they're experiencing joy. It's this beautiful exuberant expression. And then they're praising their horse for that. You know, their words and their mouth are kind of telling their brain and body, oh, this isn't scary anymore. Um, And it's something that 
has been really beautiful and has been a huge part. And frankly, I stumbled on it completely by accident. This was not something that I came to of like years of studying this technique in this specific way. I was in a round pen with a client exactly like this for the first time um, that had that, that specific dynamic. And I really, what made me think about it was that when I first adopted my horse Magnus for the first two and a half years I had him, no matter how good the ride went, at some point, his eyes would roll back in his head and he'd take off in blind flight. And the thing that made him never do it again was one day, and I was terrified for that whole time. It was I went through a whole process with this horse of going, I don't know how I'm going to fix this. And one day I just got sort of sick of it and thought, I wonder what will happen if, because I had a lot of time to think in the times of him going around and around and around and around in the arena without stopping. And so in that time to think, I thought, well, gosh. I wonder what would happen if I asked him to run faster because he's running pretty fast already and I don't love this. And I don't know that it can get all that much worse for me besides hitting the ground. So I wonder what will happen if I ask him to go faster. And he immediately stopped and took a big deep breath and like chilled out. And then he never did again. And, you know, I'm not saying that the perfect cure-all all all the time for horses that want to run off is to make them go faster. It's certainly not. And you have to do a lot of work to understand why they're doing what they're doing all of the different sort of factors in the situation. But the reality of what that exercise is has nothing to do with the technical machinations of it and everything to do with what you are doing in that situation is you are praising them for an energetic expression that was a source of punishment at one time. You are making safe in their body this experience. And sometimes it takes an hour of doing that. And other times it's under a minute. Um, and it really just depends, but it was so beautiful because the first time I experienced this with a client and I thought back to doing that with my horse Magnus and I thought, I wonder what'll happen if I start, you know, praising this horse, knowing that he was a horse that responds very well to praise. Um, I, I turned to my client and she looked at me and she goes, it kind of feels like he's having the experience of like when you have a really big cry because he laid down right after this and took a nap. He went like had this big exuberant over the top expression and was so joyful. I mean, it was like the closest thing to a horse doing like a literal happy dance I think I've ever seen. And he went and immediately rolled, laid down, took a nap and passed out cold. And it was like the stress of carrying that just lightened. And so his owner turned to me and goes, seems like he's had the experience of when you feel so much better after letting out a really big cry that you've been stifling for years. And I don't even know where it came from, but I turned to her and I said, so just out of curiosity, when was the last time you had a really big cry? And her bottom lip just started to quiver. And I was like, huh, okay. So that's a good place to start. And, you know, and that was kind of where we went Mm -hmm. from there. And that's where, when I say show me, that's kind of what I mean. And when I say, that I want people to tell me about their horses and that that it's really them telling me about themselves. That's what I mean. Um, And usually those moments of like, it seems like the horse just needed a big cry. Usually the answer is that the owner does too. Um, Mm. You know, and the horse getting frustrated about not doing something perfectly every time usually is a reflection of the fact that the owner also is frustrated about not doing something perfectly every time and is also having a self-worth related response. So all of these things that I see in horses, I see mirrored in the people. And, you know, I think that that whole concept of like the horse is the mirror to your soul 
I think has been sort of leveraged as a way to look at the therapeutic benefits horses can have in our lives. And I am so trying through my work to try to help people reshape how they look at it as um, a real responsibility on our part to turn the mirror back around on ourselves. And, um, you know, the horse is not put on this planet to be our mirror. It is a part of their nature and how they are to reflect the energy that we show them. But that is why, you know, their identity is not married to who they mirror back to us, right? That's why a horse can be 10 different versions of themselves with 10 different people. Um, It's a part of their empathic nature. And so that's where when the horse mirrors something to us, it's not necessarily that they're just this cosmic therapist that we've been blessed with. It's that we have a real responsibility to figure out how our way of being is impacting the relationship and how we can show up for them without um, a, a sense of ownership over their experience because we see it reflected in ourselves. Um, and I think that those are some of the, you know, some of the really tough conversations that, you know, I, I find in my work. And that's where a lot of, I think, you know, for so many reasons, I don't use the terminology natural horsemanship in any of the work that I do. Um, I use the term holistic horsemanship. It's something that's much more in alignment for me. Part of that is I think that, you know, I, I started in natural horsemanship, um, when it was something completely different, um, than it is now. And it was really demonized for most of my career and most of my life. And, um, it's sort of become, I think in some ways the sort of, I don't know, there's a lot of spiritual bypass that goes on in sort of traditional natural horsemanship. And, you know, um, I think there's a lot of sort of live, laugh, love, you know, no bad days, um, love and light kind of energy that goes on. And the reality is horses are some of the most emotionally intelligent creatures on the planet. And emotional intelligence means being able to hold really, really awful, big, heavy, dark, difficult experiences. And if we try to do the like, no bad days, everything's just a sense of play, we don't work with our horses, we play, it's all fun. And you know, how do we like see these beautiful transcendent healing parts of our horses, but not look at the sort of dark, difficult parts? It just creates microaggression in the relationship, where instead of having the big overt things that you see in a lot of traditional disciplines, you just have microaggressions so that nobody can see the ways that we're sort of dealing with our horses when they present us with very real, difficult emotions. And our means of horsemanship has no room for that. Um, Mm. And so that's sort of, you know, I have a, a whole complicated, you know, history and past with the world of natural horsemanship and um, what it has sort of turned into today and the ways that that's um, largely also not really in service of the horse in, in many different regards. Um, So I think that, yeah, it's, it's been interesting because I see so many, so many people, especially in the sort of Instagram um, version of natural horsemanship that floats around out there um, that I, I think is in many ways um, a slippery slope with that, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and I think that there's just so many examples of, of, packaging up something called natural horsemanship and making it, you know, look like this beautiful, deeply spiritually aligned Instagram worthy connection that often doesn't have a lot of room for like deep, uncomfortable authenticity from the horse. 
um, or from ourselves. Um, and so I think I've, I've found myself in sort of a, a little witchy dark corner of the forest that sort of, um, <laughs> you know, goes into that shadow work. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of what I've talked about when I've spoken publicly about my work is the role of shadow work in horsemanship. And, um, I think that because of all the things we're talking about in this conversation with the inherent relationship to understanding pain and suffering and doing that sort of silently or invisibly and the way that horses do that. I mean, I think that that is, that is where my connection with horses absolutely comes from is being able to relate to the experience of suffering invisibly in front of someone who's looking right at you. And mm-hmm. that is something that um, I think is, is there in everyone's relationship with their horse. It's there in everyone's relationship with another person, but it's how we learn to work with it. Um, that I think is what will really change the nature of a relationship, both with ourselves and with whoever else in question is a part of that relationship, whether they be a horse or another person. Mm, Absolutely. And thank you for, (laughs) thank you for doing that in your work. I feel like it's the elephant in the room that no one wants to talk about. And I want to hear more about shadow work and what you do. Honestly, this just needs to be like multiple. We can do a whole series <laughs> of podcast interviews with you because there's that would be so great. much here. But <laughs> I would love that. I would love that. Um, yeah. I mean, the shadow work thing is, is so unique and that's a lot of where, you know, my program Mustang, Mustang mystery school comes in. Um, and I, have been working this program. I mean, it's just been sort of a, a piece of it alongside of the work that I've done in everything. And shadow shadow work is a part of it in everything. Even really the work I do with children, even though it's not overtly discussed, you know, I find myself a lot of times working with children who are not otherwise maybe learning about some of these concepts in their home life and don't really have maybe the best developed skills yet for emotional regulation and mm-hmm. um so they're they're learning those things for the first time and what's been beautiful is the parents that I've had that will watch the work that I'm doing with their children and approach me and say so I don't even know how to do these things you're talking about I was never taught these things can I take lessons with you and that's been one of the things that's been really beautiful is all the parents that are so self-aware and so beautifully vulnerable about the fact that these are things that we don't really look at much in our society you know it's not a, it's not a deficit of parenting um necessarily at all it's a de- deficit of society and the fact that we as a human race have found so many ways to numb ourselves um and that's where i think within the numbing you know a big piece of shadow work within horsemanship i look at even the example of something like um desensitization which um i I pretty firmly believe is really Mm -hmm. just a trauma response that we teach horses. You know, when we look at the way that they are taught um, what we call, you know, this sort of experience of desensitization, really when we look at that objectively and how we would diagnose that if, if a person were experiencing that is dissociation. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And that is where we see so many people with these really well desensitized horses and, you know, well desensitized in air quotes um, that suddenly explode one day and that everybody ends up hospitalized because the horse doesn't have a good sense of judgment and empowerment and critical thinking. They're just taught dissociate if I'm uncomfortable. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and one day there, a situation might face them that they can't do that. And then they don't know what to do. Um, and people experience that in their horsemanship all the time as well. And, um, I think that one of the biggest parts of shadow work and horsemanship really relates to looking at the parts of either our horsemanship ourselves, how those things relate, um, our horse's unique experience that we don't want to look at, you know, and it's not that those are bad parts. I think the really important takeaway when we talk about shadow work in any capacity is that it's not looking at the bad parts. It's looking at the parts that are shamed, shut down, not accepted by, you know, our greater society. So, um, you know, even things like, um, the experiences sometimes of feeling really good about yourself can be shadow work for someone, for Mm -hmm. someone feeling really empowered and good about yourself and confident might be a form of shadow work for somebody, the relationship to that experience, because they might have been taught, you know, if you feel good about yourself and you feel confident, then, you know, you've got too big an ego. And so you Mm -hmm. don't deserve to feel that way. And that might be their shadow work, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not just necessarily, you know, these deep, dark, bad things. It's just the things that, you know, aren't Instagram worthy that we don't want out in the light, you know, that are, um, the difficult things we process. And I think by nature, um, of working with horses that are rescues that have been adopted, you know, that have any kind of trauma, that's part of what we sign up for. Um, and I think that there is a whole facet of the horse world that, allows us to interact with horses in ways that don't make us look at those things. And yes, absolutely. Working with horses should be fun, but if we're going to forge deep, meaningful relationships, no one talks about something like a marriage. When you decide to get married, nobody says, well, getting married should be fun. Being married should be fun. If it's not fun, don't do it. And if it's not fun, don't be married to that person. No one says that. We talk about marriage is hard. Marriage requires compromise. Marriage requires signing up for a combination of unsolvable problems that you will continue to address throughout the time that you spend with that person. And the same thing is true for entering into a partnership with a horse. So if we decide that we're just going to go, it should be fun and the horse should just be compliant and be a vehicle for my fun, then we're not in a real partnership with a horse. It's something else entirely. Um, And so I think shadow work is just a, a natural part of it. It's just something that I think the industry hasn't quite developed a language for yet. Um, and hopefully we'll begin to at some point. I'm pretty impressed at how, (laughs) how much the language has changed. Honestly, just the fact that I see trauma informed so much in the horse world is just like, hallelujah. This is something too, that I think is really important. And this is one of those like elephant in the room kind of spicy things, um, that often is not super well received. And I think in this work, I've had to learn too, if I'm going to be the person who talks about the elephant in the room has to also be sort of Mm. willing to not be well received sometimes. Um, but that is that we have words that float around like trauma informed a lot. The reality is unless someone has been to a trauma informed like certification course, it is unethical for them to claim that they're doing trauma informed work unless they are a board certified clinical therapist, uh, at least in the state of California, it is against the therapeutic code of ethics to call yourself a therapist. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's something that's really challenging. And frankly, that belief came from living in a family with, you know, several therapists and clinical psychologists, um, and developing the language of my program with them looking over my shoulder going, if you use these words, 
this is what it means. And so I'm really adamant about, you know, I am not a board certified mental health clinician. I absolutely strongly encourage um, all of my clients to receive qualified certified mental health support from Mm -hmm. other clinicians who are qualified to go into that work. And so part of my process has been around learning from those people in my life, Mm -hmm. where are things that are not within my scope? And so that's where I've had a number of clients who will make comments to me about like, you know, I I worked with a married couple at one point and they joked, they were like, you're like our marriage counselor. And I was like, absolutely not. No, I'm not. I'm not. And there are times where, you know, I will work with clients and they will start to go really deep into some other part of their life. And there's a really fine line I have to walk between holding space for self-disclosure from clients and not becoming their sort of by proxy therapist. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's something that is a really, really major issue within this new budding world of equine guided therapy um, is that we have a lot of re-traumatization happening and we have a lot of reinforcement of symptoms of complex PTSD because people who are not trained clinicians are entering into spaces that they don't actually know on a technical training level how to handle. And so while they might be extraordinarily empathic, they might be very, very experienced at doing this kind of work as it pertains to horses. There is a whole other process of education that goes into holding space for trauma in a clinical setting and intentionally presenting situations that will create that level of self-disclosure and vulnerability. And it is not safe for clients to do that intentionally if one is not a certified clinician. And so that's where, you know, that's another sort of big piece of, I think, more than anything else in the work that I do right now, where from the rest of this sort of niche of the industry that's starting to bud, I get a lot of resistance because there are so many people that do equine guided therapy that are, you know, equine therapists, all these different things. And the reality is they're not therapists and the work they do is so important and so valid. But if there is not a level of willingness to self-reflect and be accountable for where one does not have training, one starts to very quickly be in the work for the wrong reasons. Um, and it becomes no longer in service of the client. And it becomes to be able to say, I'm an equine therapist, not to actually do healing work. And it is so vital. I wish that if any any professional in this niche of the industry could do one thing, it would be to pursue training that helps them understand at what point do they need to step back and go, this is out of my scope. Let me get you hooked up with some resources. This is out of my scope. How can I help you come back to the room we're in right now? Or, you know, all of those different things to help um, diffuse a situation that may either have gone to a place that is out of scope or to help keep it from getting to that place. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that that is so challenging, particularly as equine guided therapy starts to become trendier. That is one of the things I yeah. see constantly. And I have friends and family who are not in the horse industry send me things all the time that are like, look at this equine guided therapy thing. And, you know, it's something where there's, there's not a certified, you know, clinician in sight. And, you know, that starts to get really, really scary, um, really quickly and can, can cause a lot of harm. And it's so hard to say that because everybody's 
mindset is coming from the right place. It's born out of an overwhelming desire that these practitioners have to help people. Um, and I think it's really difficult to hold that within accountability for where someone's wheelhouse is. And absolutely, you can go and get training to become a board licensed therapist, to be trauma informed, to do all those things. And if practitioners are out there and doing those things and have the qualification, you know, to support the work they're doing, beautiful. We need more of that in this industry. That is what the horse industry needs. But to do some version of that without the training and claim that that's what you're doing is really difficult because the people that are on the receiving end, the clients often don't have the knowledge to understand where the differences are. And so they will feel like they are going to their horse therapy and not understand that they're not working with a licensed clinician and why that distinction is important. You know, they, they might know this person's not a licensed clinician, but they don't understand necessarily where the discrepancies are between qualifications and what that means for their safety in moments of deep emotional vulnerability. Um, mm. And I think that that's really important and super spicy. It's, it's really hard <laughs> to, you know, really hard for people to talk about as this is becoming more and more popular. And, you know, it's so challenging because I've been met a few times with the feedback of, you know, this has been what the horse industry needs for so long. Why, you know, why would you ruin it? Like, don't ruin it. You know, don't, don't be a buzzkill. Like, don't, you know, you're harming the progression forward if you call these things out. And the reality is if the progression forward is built on a foundation of sand that is harmful for people, then it's not really progression forward. And in fact, it's going to reinforce a false belief about how helpful it can be when it's done right. If it's done in a way that is harmful and then over time, that's the perception that gets created. It's going to put the people who are fully qualified or who are doing adjacent and also helpful work um, in a light that's not good. And it will, you know, getting really far really fast is great. And the fact that this has picked up so much wind, you know, this niche of the horse industry has picked up, you know, so much velocity is incredible. But if it's happening from places that are not truly in alignment, it's going to cause greater setback than when this niche didn't even exist. Um, And I think that's what we see with natural horsemanship a lot in the way that natural horsemanship kind of has a connotation to it now that is what a lot of people don't mean. And I think that's where the world of equine therapy is headed if we're not more careful. Yeah, like the snake oil salesman, right? Mm -hmm. Or just the people who sort of don't know what they don't know. And I think that's really hard too, is I think there are a lot of, you know, trainers and, you know, self-described equine therapists out there who have every intention of helping people to the greatest extent of their capability that want to be, you know, a source of healing for people and they're not trying to cause harm. And in the moment, it might not even look like they're causing harm, but years down the line, that person might find themselves, that client might find themselves in a setting where they realize that things were handled in a way that wasn't helpful for them, that it might require more help from a licensed clinician to sort of undo much later. And I think that's where a lot of the challenge is, is not, I think the sort of snake oil salesman and sort of, you know, sort of sleazy, you know, charlatan side of things, um, is is one piece that's really dangerous but i think far more dangerous are the people who kind of don't know what they don't know and are 
in it for the wrong, you know, wrong reasons, or they think they're in it for the right reasons, but it sort of turns into something different over time. I think that's where, you know, accountability on the part of professionals in this industry is something that is like the next needed revolution. (laughs) Um, Because I think that it's very hard to authentically help and support a person through difficulty if we can't be authentic um, and accountable within ourselves um, as, as facilitators. And that goes for on, on any level of qualification that goes from something like, you know, what I do. And it's, it's um, obviously something I'm really passionate about because one of the number one questions I get is, so how did you get into being an equine therapist? And I have to pretty consistently shut down that Mm -hmm. perception um, Mm -hmm. because it also, I think, to sort of the point of something I alluded to, you know, a minute ago, I I think it sort of also creates this false sense of like, well, if I'm doing this, then I don't need to see a therapist. Um, (laughs) When those things are completely different modalities. And um, I think we have to be very, very careful in our pursuit of trying to help people that we don't sort of create a, a sense that mental health support in a clinical setting is not needed and is not necessary. And that um, mm. we sort of make it even more inaccessible for people because they feel like they've found some sort of, you know, tra- trap door to an alternative. Um, mm. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of responsibility on the people that are, you know, sort of pioneering this newfound niche of the horse world as the sort of, healing nature of horses becomes more and more trendy, um, particularly here in Southern California. Yeah. And I think it has been around, you know, it's like as ancient as our bonds with them. Like, why do we feel better when we're on their backs? Like you said earlier, but it is, it's really difficult to untangle that when, just like you said, I had a client who after our sessions, we would get into like the groove of doing a check-in before we'd even like go and catch the horses and work with them. And she, in one of the memos of her payment online, it was like her little note said psychotherapy. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, no, no, there's a yeah, reason that I'm not. Too. Yes, that's, exactly. That's, and that's the other thing that I tell people is like, there is, it's not just, you know, what people don't realize when I talk about something being against, you know, being an ethics violation from when we talk about like the California psychological board, for example, usually that's hand in hand with it being a legal violation that it falls under like practicing therapy without a license or (laughs) things like that. Like that's the part that people sort of also don't realize is that there's a real practical element to that conversation that I'm having of like, we can't go out and practice medicine without a license. We can't drill someone's tooth without, you know, a, a dental degree. Like we've, we've got to have the, the training to do what we're saying we're doing. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and so that's something too, that's like a whole other piece is, is the, the ways that we've got to make sure that we don't sort of eradicate the work that we're doing from the the face of the sort of equine industry planet by way of just sort of, incorrectly marketing what we're doing in a way that makes it so that insurance companies won't cover us if we say that this is what we're doing or things like that. You know, there's a whole complicated process of, you know, explaining to underwriters the nature of like the work that I do um, in a way that makes them feel like they can take on the liability 
of what I'm doing and that what I'm doing is credible. Um, and if I start using language that reflects me having a different kind of qualification than I do, you know, my insurance company will go, so sorry, but this is not safe for us. And we're, we're not going to do this with you anymore. Um, yeah. So I think yeah. there's a real practical element too to keeping even just the work that we're doing accessible for people. Um, and that has a lot to do with just transparency of how we market what we're doing. Yeah. And it is challenging enough just to get insurance for horse training <laughs> straightforwardly when you say, you know, you also do body work or, right. you know, oh, rehabilitative work is a movement. whole thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. To explain to an underwriter for an equine insurance agency what equine Reiki is and like that I'm not, you know, doing a ritual sacrifice on a horse um, <laughs> is something that is is really complicated sometimes. And, for, you know, fortunately, I work with an insurance agency that is wonderful and is, you know, is staffed by almost exclusively horse people. So the good news is, you know, that when one of them goes, what is that? You know, they can go, I, I think that the person at the desk next to me does energy work for their horse. Let me ask them and then I'll call you back. So, you know, I think that it's, it's definitely picking up, you know, picking up some momentum, but even like herbalism with horses too, is another thing that we have to be super careful about as it relates to, you know, sort of where that starts to get into the medical world and making sure that we're, you know, considered part of a care team, not a replacement for veterinary care, you know, all those different things. I think the nature of working in any capacity, even if we're not talking about with horses, but specifically with horses, the nature of being in the part of the industry that specifically deals with healing work is one that carries with it a tremendous responsibility about understanding where the boundaries of our work starts and stops um, and making sure that our clients are well informed about that and that the other care providers um, in that horse owner's life also are aware of that mm. um, and that we're part of a team, not an alternative. Um, so I think that's a really huge piece of it for sure. That's a great way to look at it too, is just responsibility and integrity. Like, do you really want that amount of responsibility? And if so, go through med school, take the extra, however, 10 years, you know, to get that credential or that license. But that is, I feel like just having a horse as a horse guardian is enough Mm -hmm. of a responsibility that... Absolutely. You know, you, I assume responsibilities that we're not qualified to carry. I mean, oh my goodness, <laughs> I think everyone's got enough on their plate, you know, and, <laughs> and um, you know, I, I think that there is so much more freedom too in, um, in that authenticity and in that integrity. And um, I think, again, part of that integrity goes back to being really comfortable with the phrase, I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. and I don't know, but I can find out, um, you know, and, yeah. and things like that. I think in, in the world of specifically horse trainers, there is, um, a, a pretty significant deficit of the expression. I don't know. Um, cause it's not considered a, a terribly safe, uh, sentence for successful horse trainers. Um, right. Right. and I think that the freedom, and I have found that, for me, in my work with clients, being able to admit when I don't know something or um, share that I've had a similar experience of, you know, being anxious about something or, um, you know, being able to relate to to that not knowing um, 
has done nothing but create um, greater trust with my clients. And um, I have found that the, especially when I'm working with anxious riders, the anxiety that the clients feel in their perception of me and their relationship to me is decreased almost, you know, a hundred times over. If I can say, you know what, I used to go through this same thing with my horse, or I was really afraid of a horse at one point too, or I, you know, I don't know the answer to that. And, um, you know, I think particularly for people who are really new in the industry, I mean, I, this has been my entire world for my entire life. So I have collected a lot of information from a lot of different places over time. And when I'm having a conversation with a client who's maybe only been in the horse world for six months, it can seem really quickly. Like I have an answer to everything and I don't. Um, Mm -hmm. And like the answer that I have to everything is the right one. And it might not be. And I think instilling that in clients is something that not only creates more trust, not less um, contrary to what I think a lot of the equine industry is worried about, um, which is that if I don't know everything and everything I say isn't right, then how can you trust me and why would you hire me? Um, and the reality is it just, it creates a separation, right? It creates an othering of, you know, I can't make a mistake in front of this person because they know everything or, you know, whatever it is. And the reality is nobody in this industry knows everything. And so, um, it starts to, if I don't put in the effort to build that relationship of, you know, sort of humanizing myself um, in that way with people and showing like, I make mistakes. Hey, I did something with my horse the other day that wasn't, you know, the way that I wanted it to turn out or, or whatever. Um, not just I have made mistakes before, but I make them still um, is something that creates a trust that I'm not going to lie to them. Um, you know, that I'm not going to say things they don't mean, that I'm not going to criticize them or judge them if they make a misstep or, um, you know, don't exhibit the best judgment in a given moment, you know, that I'm not somehow sort of on this elevated plane of like, you know, and, and a lot of the feedback that I have gotten prior to really making an effort to do that. I think when I was much younger and I was so afraid of the way that I was perceived for being really young as I didn't want anyone to know that I ever made mistakes. And I, you know, still leaned really deeply into my empathy, but I was not the idea of somebody seeing me make a mistake with my horse when they were a client was just, was something that would cut me off at the knees where now I'm thrilled about it when that happens, because it tells them that I am no better, right? Just because I know, you know, some things maybe that they haven't learned yet, they can learn those things and then they'll know them too. You know, it doesn't, it, it's not that, my knowledge is sort of in its own insulated, um, inaccessible bubble and that, you know, anyone knowing more than anyone else makes them any better. All somebody else has to do to get that knowledge is learn it. And then everybody's on, you know, the same level. And so all that stands between my qualifications and my clients is the years of learning. And so if they put those years of learning in, they're going to be right where I am. And so I'm, you know, no different from them. And if they can see that, then their anxiety will so dramatically reduce um, as opposed to if they think they can't make a mistake. Yeah. I think that's a systemic issue with us 
presenting ourselves in the horse world as invincible. And I think that's sort of the old way of tradition of, you know, yelling at someone when they did it wrong. And maybe that's because it's such a risky thing, but no one is invincible. And especially with horses, there's, it's not a, if it happens, it's when, and if we can laugh at ourselves and like be extra cautious and extra caring and not judge someone else for doing it different because we might learn the same things, but we're going to execute it differently. We're individuals. And I think part of that being gentle is doing it with our horse, you know, with ourselves and with our horses too, you know, and, and realizing like, you know, we can have bad days and so can our horses. And that, um, you know, one of the, one of the trends that I see a lot with my clients and particularly the ones that deal with a lot of fear is, um, that when they make a mistake, the way that they do something like apologize to the horse, they really over identify with that mistake in a way that it's like the worst thing they could have done in the entire world was make this mistake. And the horse doesn't really understand that. All they understand is that the person is activated and maybe there's something wrong and are they in trouble? Are they in danger? They don't understand this expression of emotion and it really doesn't do anything other than reinforce shame in the client. And so Mm -hmm. one of the ways that I can help to shift that pattern is to show them, you know, I make mistakes and you're paying me to be here and you look at my work and you like it and you respect it. And I still make mistakes too. And there are days that I don't show up as my best self with my horse. And I've created a relationship with the horse where I can forgive myself and the horse can forgive me for that because of the other ways that I contribute to the relationship. And that's what Mm -hmm. I want to help clients do. Not sort of self-flagellate with this like mea culpa, you know, down on their knees response of like, oh my God, I failed this horse and I've just, all I wanted was to save it and now I failed it. And this sort of big shame story that we get into um, when our entire heart and soul rides, you know, literally on the back of this horse and, you know, we don't have gracefulness with ourselves. Um, and so a lot of what the the foundational work for me um, with working with people who have fear and anxiety is teaching them a practice of gracefulness within themselves and gracefulness towards themselves um, and forgiveness towards themselves and acceptance of themselves. Because until there is that nothing's going to change. And that's true of, of any habit, any pattern until there is gracefulness towards the self and empathy towards the self. We can't change a behavior. Um, And so that's an area where a lot of times I'll start working with people and they will have found my program thinking, oh, this person's going to cure me of my fear and anxiety. Um, And the reality is they're, they're going to learn to overcome it and cope with it and develop tools on their own, you know, through my facilitation. Yes. But the thing that is always where we start is with that, that relationship to, um, you know, gracefulness towards self. And that's something that I find, a lot of clients feel is sort of unexpected because what they think is going to happen is that I'm going to make the horse stop doing the scary thing. Um, and that's mm-hmm. not it at all. <laughs> Usually the scary thing either isn't scary anymore because we understand it or, uh, and, or goes away naturally because the shift mm-hmm. in the dynamic that happens as a result of those changes means that then, um, a different way of being is possible within the relationship. So, so yeah, that's, that's a little bit more about, you know, that particular piece of the program. And, and that's, 
within all of this and the whole conversation that we've had, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are ways to sort of see that each of these programs, you know, all the different programs that I have are all deeply interwoven with one another. Um, and they can all stand alone based on an individual person's need, but they largely all kind of intermingle. Um, and particularly with the work I do with adults, usually there is a sprinkling of, of each of the different kinds of things that I offer within whatever their sort of tailor-made program is. Um, and they might come to me for one thing and then six months down the line realize that we're doing something in a completely different program because that was really the thing they needed, but they weren't quite ready to see that yet. Or they are doing something completely different because they weren't ready to do something more intensive or they weren't, weren't ready to grow and push beyond the boundaries that they had when they first came in. And so, you know, things will sort of grow and shift over time. And I've intentionally cultivated all of that in such a way that what I do and what I offer can grow and change with people to continue to support them beyond just sort of checking off the technical boxes of abilities. Um, and so I think that that's something that really continues to inspire me and, and means that, um, you know, every new client is just is, is completely unique. And I can work with 10 people who have the exact same story with their horse, and it's going to be different every time. Um, and it doesn't matter how many times somebody comes to me with a particular kind of issue that they're having, whatever it is, where I might have worked with you know, a hundred people who struggle with their horse taking off and every single time it's different Um, (laughs) because people are different and horses are different. (laughs) Wow. I feel like that is, that's our launching pad, but that is like the perfect place to end it for now. We'll put a pin in it and pick it up in the next, the next of the series. Sounds great. My mind is just like blown right now. I loved hearing you speak to all of that. And there's so much more there. But for now, if you want to actually just give us like in a nutshell, can you define health and horsemanship? Health and horsemanship in a nutshell. Okay. Um, Goodness gracious. I think that really it comes from the starting place is learning to listen. Um, You know, I think that um, one of, one of the sort of expressions that um, I've had float around for a while and that is sort of, I guess, I guess my slogan um, if, if one has such a thing in this industry is, you know, let the horse be your compass and your intuition be your guide. And, um, you know, it, it, I mean exactly what that says and that, um, you know, the horse will show you where you need to go and your intuition will show you how you ought to get there. Um, and the same thing is true when we talk about our own health of, um, really understanding intuition. And that, that just comes from being a good listener and learning how to listen. And sometimes that's really, really hard to do, particularly where health is concerned. Um, and we're listening to our bodies is concerned, but, you know, empathy, um, I think really opens the doorway to that. And so, um, I think that if ever we're not sure, you know, or if somebody says, well, how do I start learning to listen? Um, empathy is the biggest answer. Um, and finding, finding ways to have empathy for 
um, those around us and for ourselves. I think often it's a lot easier to start by having empathy for others than it is to have it for ourselves. Um, and sometimes having it for others, particularly for our horses, is a really great um, entry point to being able to have it for ourselves. And so, um, you know, I think for those who want to kind of start on that journey, you know, starting by just really feeling into that experience of empathy um, is is a really valuable place to start for sure. And is integral to horses and health in every, every capacity. Mm. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> wow. You have really beautiful, rich things to say and your perspective <laughs> is just unlike anything I've heard. I mean, I've known women who have been in the industry their whole lives, but I think your engine of learning is so different given, you know, your body and, and everything that you've been through with your health. So keep on sharing these rich insights with us, please. And where can people find you out in the world? So people can find my website, um, openhorsemanship.com. Um, I, in terms of social media, am primarily active um, with the handle at openhorsemanship on Instagram. So people can um, find me there. I have a Facebook page, Open Heart Horsemanship. To be entirely honest, I don't use Facebook all that much anymore, but it is out there. Um, I also have a fun little TikTok account also at Open Heart Horsemanship. Um, so yeah, those are those are the primary places. And then anyone who wants to get in touch, um, I primarily communicate via email, which is info at openhearthorsemanship.com. I will also include those links in the show notes. And then... One other little inkling that I have is like a curiosity. Are you thinking about ever in the future becoming a board certified therapist? Because I feel like you would be a natural. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. Um, my my sibling right now is um, in school getting their master's and is ultimately going to go on to get their doctorate um, as, as a psychologist and um, works in the area of um, addiction recovery, um, particularly in queer spaces. And, um, I'm so inspired by them and watching them has shown me how much time I would have to take away from my work in order to do that. Mm. Um, and so that's a really big reason that I've kind of slowed down. There was a minute there when I was much younger where I considered doing that. Um, I think that for me, the middle ground is getting as educated as I can about how to best help people connect with those certified clinical resources. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, gosh, never say never. Right. But it also is something that, um, for me, I think would just, would take a lot of time away from doing the real work in the field that I'm doing. And while it would shift it and create a richness that, um, would be completely new and different, um, just having the number of, um, certified mental health clinicians in my life that I do and seeing the process of what it takes to go through that. Um, and the amount of time that you have to spend paying your dues in spaces that are not necessarily like your dream end goal, um, in order to meet certain qualifications and go through, um, mm -hmm. certain pieces of the programs that you want to be in that maybe are, are absolutely valid requirements, but not totally the thing you want to be doing. Um, I'm so fortunate to have built a career in which I get to already do the thing that is 
um, such a beautiful manifestation of what I feel my purpose is. And so, you know, for that reason, I'm, I'm pretty hesitant about the idea of actually um, pursuing that and think that in general, just being really, really well educated about where the boundaries of my scope of practice are um, is the most important thing I can do in relationship to that field. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I a hundred percent feel you there. Time is like (laughs) the most valuable limited resource and any moment spent with horses is just worth it. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Shannon. Thank you so much for being here. I can't wait for the next one. Me too. Bye for now. Bye, Shannon. Thank you for listening to these stories on healing and horsemanship. If you're moved by this episode, please rate and subscribe wherever you're listening to help the show grow. This show is supported by The Herd. The Herd offers monthly bonuses for members, including access to a growing content library on all things health, wellness, and horses. Join today at wildwhaling.com herd membership. And until next time, I wish you harmony in your health and with horses.